This is Ruth Mukwana, a humanitarian worker and a writer. In 2021, 235 million people will need humanitarian assistance and protection. While these statistics are shocking, they don't tell the complete human story. This podcast talks to the people responding to this crisis, the people affected by them, and the writers telling their stories. This is Stories and Humanitarian Action. Today, I'm speaking to Jamie McGoldrake. Jamie is a former United Nations official. He worked for the United Nations for over 25 years in the Middle East, Asia, Africa, under the United Nations headquarters. Prior to joining the United Nations, he worked for the International Federation of Red Cross, the International Committee of Red Cross, and Save the Children Fund. Welcome, Jamie. Tell me about yourself. Well, yeah, I grew up in Glasgow in Scotland. Um, I'm the, the son, um, I'm in a family of, uh, there's five of us, uh, a brother and three sisters. Uh, my parents are Irish immigrants, so first generation here in Scotland. Um, I am married, um, my wife works for ICRC, Claudia, and I've got two girls at, at university. Um, I basically very interested in international affairs and politics and very much concerned about where things where things are in the world today, I think the whole COVID has sort of shown an X-ray on all the frailties and the sort of the inequalities that are out there. Um, I, I like sport a lot, especially football, and I follow my home team, which is Glasgow Celtic. Um, I like Glasgow Celtic for lots of reasons. It grew up as a a way of helping poor people, raising money, but it also continues that tradition with sort of its political statements on Palestine most recently, some of the stuff they criticised Trump for, the whole apartheid. And um, so I'm very much keen on that. And I'm also very keen on uh, music, especially jazz music. And I know that you recently have retired from the UN, but I'm very interested because you've had a very long and distinguished career with the United Nations. So throughout all of those years, what kept you going? Well, I mean, first of all, I, I thought it was extremely lucky to be able to get a chance to work for the UN. I mean, it's a privilege and an honour. Um, and I was very fortunate. I worked with fantastic people in different country settings, uh, national staff and international staff. Um, I worked at headquarters too, so I got a sense of what that's all about. So I felt very lucky in that regard. But also, I think that the fact that I worked for the organisations, Red Cross, Save the Children Fund, etc., and the thing that always struck me was, uh, you know, the the motivation is about the human spirit and this idea of, you know, pride and trying to fix things, get things better, make things right for people. And I think, you know, spirit of uh, looking out for others, um, I, I'm a, a great sort of line I always take from a song. It was always, it's not what you're born with, but it's what you do with what you've got. And I think that regardless of whether you've got this or that, make it maximize it for the better of you but also for others and so you know i've, I've always said that as a sort of a, a, a my sort of way of thinking of the world and uh, how you live in it and how you feel at peace with yourself because you know it's not easy uh, working in the work we do because it's always unsettled uncertain and you never quite know when it's going to get better and many times it doesn't get better and the tragedy is when you go back to a country that you've worked in you think you've done a good job to help turn it around and you go back and it's gone further down and the people suffer even further. And uh, that's that's a bit of a, a worry. But uh, no, I, I think these are the things that motivate you, sense of resilience and the human spirit. And throughout, when you reflect back throughout your career in the humanitarian sector, 
What was your biggest achievement? In terms of achievements, I would say that, you know, getting the, the Nepal earthquake right after the Philippines' failure, I think, uh, was important because the, the, the world was shining a very negative light on the humanitarian, the UN-led humanitarian response, and I, I wanted to make sure that was done right. And that meant fighting with the government in Nepal, and uh, I, I fought hard with them and almost was pushed out of Nepal for that reason. And uh, they tried their best through even to the Secretary General to get me removed. But I think that given the work we were doing there as a, a country team was excellent. And I think uh, they'll the, be actually moved the, the work away from the Kathmandu controlled civil bureaucracy and political uh, actors and move it out into the countryside where the areas where the, the, the impact of the earthquake could be felt. That was a massive uh, fight, but it was a, a very well worth fight. And I, the other thing I would say that very very happy with um, the the way we were able to come in and set up a, a good response in Yemen in the early days and push back very hard on the very strong political forces of you know the the, the Saudi led alliance that was there including some of the Western countries that supported them after the Iran problem and so there was a sort of a, a politicization in your face but I think being able to push back on that and try and make humanity win out over the politics of that was something I was very, um, very pleased with. Yeah, and I know you've worked, Yemen continues to be a big emergency. It doesn't seem to be light at the end of the tunnel. But tell me, what has been some of your toughest moments? Well, I think some of the toughest moments are when, when you realise you can't do any more. Um, when you realise that it's um, you're in a situation, no matter how hard you try, the forces that are there are stronger and bigger than all of us and you as an individual. And that can be seen in the Yemen context when you know that uh, next door, the Saudi Arabian government decided they were going to stop everything going in from flights going in, flights going out, for people to get life-saving support to themselves for the whole strangulation of bringing media in to shine a light and let the world see what was happening in that tragedy. You know, that, those are forces way beyond you. And no matter what you did, there was no appealing to a, a humanity and there was no, you know, recalling the you know the principles of independence and neutrality and all that stuff. It just doesn't work on some people. So I think that was one of those frustrations. And another frustration for me was like uh, Gaza, you know, that we, um, whether it was a failure or not, I don't know, but it was certainly a real serious thing for me where, you know, you, you go to... Um, children's cancer ward in Gaza City and um, you, you know that we should be getting more supplies into these places um, and then you see the fact that we can't supply enough cancer drugs to um, to the doctors and it's like they've got 10 young patients they have to deal with and we, we were able to collectively bring in enough um, material support and drugs for, for five so the doctor has to sort of play God in a way and uh, I think that's something we have to, that, that shouldn't be something that happens in, in, a, in a country like uh, Palestine and, and Gaza. Right. And how would you define a humanitarian crisis? You know, when, when government fails to govern or people live without government, when the economy fails or starts to break down because of, there's a military uh, situation, and then what you get is governments and the authorities at the local level are unable to give people basic protection to uphold their rights to provide services, schools and health services. And things start to look, um, when the supplies of drugs fail, when there's maybe a crop failure. And then when you, when you have a sort of a three or four of those things all aligned, 
uh, then what you have is um, outrage. You have um, groups inside the country, outside the country, willing to try and exploit that fragility and uncertainty. And so you get groups who come in and try to take over. And then so what you get is a situation where people are unable to be served by a government. The government's at odds with another group. The other group's trying to come in. And then what you get is instability and people's fear. And then people are not going to plan. People then have to get displaced or are displaced. And the international community takes a long time to get alerted to that. And uh, when it does get alerted, it's often slow and often, you know, it's cumbersome because of all the politics in it. The one thing you can be sure of in a crisis, in a humanitarian crisis, regardless of whether it's a, something that's done by nature, be it an earthquake or a flood or a drought, or it's a, a crisis inside a country, an internal conflict, the, the thing you know will, will definitely be uh, the, the consequence uh, continually will be the poor, the disadvantaged and the marginalised will be thrown aside and they'll be left to fend for themselves and they'll struggle and they'll die. And how has COVID made it worse? Well, I think in many ways we can see why it's made it worse. It's because governments have got a, a ready-made excuse not to look beyond the borders because they're too busy dealing with it themselves. Despite the fact that the COVID virus knows no boundaries and knows no frontiers, um, we all look at it through the national lens and we want to get our own people done first and get vaccinated. Like, for example, UK will say we'll give so many million of doses, but at the same time, the same government saying we're cutting our 0.7% commitment to aid down to 0.5. And they're saying that's because of COVID. And I think what they're saying is that COVID is a good excuse for us to start making cuts in international support, international humanitarian development assistance. So I think what COVID has done is given excuses. And... When you think about it, you know, you have, we have COVID and you've mentioned some of, you know, what a humanitarian crisis is and you've also touched upon some of the causes, but, you know, because we have climate change, we have conflict, now we have the pandemic, which has made it much worse. And also when you think about uh, the environment, the context where you've worked, you know, Yemen, you've mentioned Gaza, when it comes to advocating to resolving the causes of these uh, humanitarian crises, what, what do you see as the biggest, some of the biggest challenges? I think over the years we've, we've seen, probably since Kosovo, um, this whole idea of humanitarian intervention. Um, and I think what that is is sort of a precursor for, as we see now, for the politicization of humanitarian work. I mean, from those days in Kosovo all the way through to Yemen and to Palestine, um, decisions are made um, looking through um, a political lens for funding and for the type of support you give to that crisis. Um, and I think we also see that in the Security Council where you should be talking about peace and security and talking about um, fixing the, the problem of that country to get it stable again, whatever the crisis may be, um, more and more of our issues end up being humanitarian issues being being discussed in, in the, the Security Council. And rather than talking about those issues, you have um, nations talking about uh, humanitarian access. I mean, I think the Syria crisis uh, highlighted that quite clearly, where, you know, even those humanitarian resolutions where um, our work then becomes the currency of conversation in the Security Council. So I think that's one of the, the, the big worries for me is that uh, this general humanitarian sort of um, demise and uh, politics over humanity. Again, you know, staying with advocacy, 
Is there a role for, for stories? Well, I mean, the thing is for me that um, people remember stories more than anything else. I mean, to be honest with you, you know, you, when you go to a, a, a meeting or you go to a crisis or you go to a situation, it's when somebody tells you a story that, that resonates with you. It's, it's not the facts, the figures, the graphs. I know those are important to tell the story, but the actual story is about individuals. And, um, you know, I, I, we recognise that very clearly in Palestine when, when I was there uh, the last couple of years. And something that we put in place was something that was a project called the Life with Dignity Approach. And what it was was to try and take back the narrative from, um, to, to the, on the Palestinian issue, take back the narrative from this political issue, the rights issue, the occupation issue, and feature people in that who have been affected and who are affected by it. For example, why is it that a five-year-old child in, in West Bank or Gaza is different from a five-year-old child in Israel across maybe 50 miles away, 50 kilometers away? And try to tell the story too, because that then resonates with people who, because everybody has children, or most people have children, so... People would understand that, my niece, my nephew, my own son, my own daughter, I would understand that so you can relate to it. I think that's the only way you can tell a story is by showing people that what the impact is having on an individual, on a family, on a community. And more importantly, how we need to help change that reality for them because if it's not a life without dignity, it's not a life worth having. No, I'm a huge advocate of, of stories and, and fiction, as you know, and this is a good time for us to talk about Beasts of No Nation, a novel yeah. by Uzodima Iwayela. Um, first, tell me what this book is about and how it raises awareness about conflict. Well, it's, it's an interesting book. I mean, it's uh, written in the first person, so it's got, a, it's got a very nice narrative about it. Okay, it's written in English that's obviously from uh, written in the style of someone who is um, colloquial, so it's, uh, it's an interesting way to read. It's a story, I think, of an individual, a young boy, Agu, who gets caught up in something beyond his control, which is so commonplace in certain parts of the world in certain times. And it's, it's set in West Africa, but it tells you how quickly a life can go from normal to so abnormal and extreme in a very, very short period of time. And so for me, it's, I mean, obviously the, the, the name itself, Beast of No Nation, is actually from a a fella Kuti track. I don't know if you know the track. It's actually a very long track. I have the album. Um, and it's excellent. And that's a track about human rights. And it's, a, it's actually on the front cover of the album, there's actually um, the Beast of No Nations. And there's people like Maggie Thatcher and others, other politicians, leaders of the day who are shown to be with horns like devils. So it's a, an interesting one. But it's, uh, I mean, the story itself is a very interesting one. And I think it's uh, highlights some of the issues that uh, many times have happened in many parts of the world for, for decades. And I think uh, the fact that it's in West Africa is quite indicative because it's a country, a, a region of Africa that's been so fragile for years. And when you've got the crisis in one country spreading into another country, how easy that can happen. And a lot of it happens in West Africa. And uh, I think the, the, the story basically highlights what it, what it can do to an individual in a family, in a community, in a village. And before we go further into Beasts of No Nation, could you please read an excerpt? Yeah, I've got, I've, there were so many, so, choice, so many choices um, to look at, but I'll, I'll pick one for you. And it was... Um, it, it, he he reflects, Agu reflects back a lot on what he was before he became a child soldier. And he's, of, um, you know, he, he does a lot of 
thinking and musing on what happened to him. And so in this one here, uh, this is what he goes, I'm thinking of myself all of the time that what I'll do when the war is over and I am alive. And I'm thinking that when it's over, I can be going to university to study. I think I am wanting to be an engineer because I like how mechanic is always doing things to the truck. And I like to be watching, even though there is no chance for me to try what they are doing. And sometimes I'm thinking that I want to be a doctor because then I'll be able to be helping people instead of killing them. And then maybe I'll be forgiven for all of my sin. Yeah, and this is about, I, I know that moment, and even listening to you read it now, I get goosebumps because, you know, we see this young boy who was living in his village with his parent, with his little sister, excited about going to school. And he had these dreams that are then really blown away in, in, in a second. Yeah. And, you know, again, going back to the book, what was his life before, before he became a child soldier? Well, I mean, the way they tell it, the way he, he reflects back on it, I mean, he was obviously living in a village um, and then there was an attack on a village and he was abducted. Um, the, the father um, and he stayed behind to protect with other men in the village, knowing that this attack may take place. The, the mother and the sister were taken by the UN peacekeepers in a truck away for, to safety. I found that quite a strange part of the story. But the, the way he describes it, he seems to have had a normal life. He seems to have had, you know, he, he read books. He enjoyed going to school. Um, he he lived, in a fa- lived with his family in a village. He had a love of reading in the school and he had ambitions. He read the Bible every day. You know, he thinks back at the time, you know, playing at war with his friends and then how this how the war that he's in now is not the same. And um, so it was it, it was a real shattering of innocence, you know, and I think that in this story it tells you, you know, and, and because it's in a first person narrative and he is, he has a lot of time to reflect and he describes really vividly of the war and, you know, the rape and the looting and the killing and some of the starvations that he has to go through and the horrors that are there. And the suffering goes with it, and it's just a loss of innocence and, and a waste. And I think it's when I, I worked in West Africa for about almost ten years in many different parts, and and I met so many young boys in the Sierra Leonean War and the Liberia War who were very much in this mode. Now, obviously, not inside their head, but seeing how they operated and seeing the, the what happened to them because of the war and the, the sort of what it had done to their mental stability and what the rehabilitation requirements were. So it was a, it was a, an amazing story. And you've touched upon, and before I even go to that, I also remember that moment which you've mentioned just, you know, when the, 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 the women and children are being taken on these trucks, UN trucks. Um, but I also remember that um, Agu really wanted to go with his mum. Um, yeah. And his mom, of course, wanted to to go with with his son. And, and if you remember that particular moment, again, if you could just talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, it is a difficult thing to, 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 to a young boy like that who, for some reason, he's been asked to stay back with his father because the men of the village are going to guard the village. And the young boy is innocent. I mean, he, it's hard to say what age he is, but he's, he's quite young. And um, all, all that he's known in his life has been his village, his school, his reading his Bible, his 
his sister, his mother and his father. And all of a sudden, um, the, the, the split and the separation and they go off on a, a peacekeeping truck into somewhere in the distance. They don't know where where they're going. And then I think the, the fear of not knowing if they'll see them again and the tragedy that comes with that. And then the fact that, that what he faces an individual in a village setting with an attack imminent, um, being a young boy, what that must be like then. And obviously being with his father is obviously something he wants to do, but obviously at the back of his mind, the fact that his family is now broken and his village is now emptied of all the women and children. And so it must be such a harrowing thing to happen. And yet we know that it's happened in thousands of villages at thousands of times in the last decades, in, and especially in West Africa. Child soldiers is another theme. In fact, the writer himself, Uzodima, was inspired to write the story after reading an article about a story of a child soldier. Um, there's a lot of violence in, in the book. You know, family separation is another big uh, theme, sexual violence. But going back to child soldiers, if you could talk to me about, you know, about this. I think the book highlights a lot of the, the things that I saw myself in Sierra Leone uh, during the war in Liberia, uh, during the war sort of uh, the, the mid-90s. And um, it's, it's, I remember being in Kenema in Sierra Leone and uh, a truck comes to town, um, a rebel truck came to town and on the bumpers there were three heads cut off and uh, young boys in the in the village or in the, the town um you know obviously it obviously attracted them for the horror of it but i think it also attracted them the fact that they're part of a group of guys young guys who they looked up to and um i i think that there is a, a sort of a an external attraction to that type of violence and that type of uh, behavior in a setting like that, when the uncertainty is there, but the, what you could become is a part of a group of people who are in control. And then later on in Sierra Leone, when you saw when the war was over and there was some sort of rehabilitation, you go to some of these camps where young boys, young girls, you saw the violence of um, you know the the hands being cut off of farmers or people cut off so they couldn't vote or sending signals and fear. And some of these young boys were ones who perpetrated these acts of extreme violence and then having to get rehabilitated and get tuned back into their own community and be accepted again. Uh, it's, it's a lot of work. And I know that the book itself ends up where the, the young boy is in, goes in, in a sort of a Christian um, home where he's being sort of, they're going through the process of trying to sort of um, help him get back on his feet again. But I think, oh, I wonder whether all the people that needed the support as, as child soldier, former child soldiers, ever got it. And if not, what it's done to them and what it's done to their families and their communities. Um, I, I think that we don't really fully understand, you know, when you've got, when you've been part of or you've taken part in or you've been exposed to that type of level of extremes that this book shows can happen the looting the raping the the, the murder the the even the cannibalism all of that you know what does it do to the human psyche and, and especially a young human psyche it's unfathomable i was actually reading uh that some of the interviews uh of the author himself and uh, one of the things he he really said was that you know the characters in beasts of no nation are not monsters 
they are not psychopaths, mm. you know, at the very least, you know, not before war finds them. They, like yeah. many children, forced into combat, and even the adults, they fight alongside a people with histories, hopes, and visions of what life should be like. These histories and hopes are sometimes all that have they have as a guide through the insanity of war. And then I guess he ends, when I was reading that particular paragraph, you know, of one of his uh, interviews on the book, and he said this is what the, you know, what makes the violence and brutality they experience and the one that they themselves then inflict very tragic. As, as a foreigner, you, you come to a place and you stay in the capital and you then you venture up countries like in Liberia and Sierra Leone and, and Guinea or wherever the, the, the war has taken place. And you go to some of these far-flung places. But you can see why um, in, in those locations, why people would be attracted to um, change. Because, I mean, the, the, you see, and obviously increasingly so because of social media and the ability to, to hear about stories about people having a better life and people wanting a, a more luxurious way of living, a more stable, a more a car, all those things. And it's beyond people's normal means because they're not given the education in many cases. And then what happens is they, they, they end up uh, having to try and get that through other means. And, you know, even in Gaza, well, it's not a, a type of conflict. There is a, an inbuilt disappointment where, you know, people wake up in the morning and they turn on their phones or their laptops and they can because they have them. And they, they, they look on the social media and they say people, people of their own age, uh, you know, standing at the sea in Gaza and looking across the Mediterranean Sea, they know at the other end of that sea there are people who are the same age as them with cars and flats and houses and get married and having a job and traveling and you're, you're trapped in Gaza uh, and you know and you wonder why you know there's you know there is drug misuse there there is suicide there all of these things that you shouldn't we don't talk about because they're there in, in a sort of a Muslim environment but they're there and then if you go in other parts of the world where youth are disappointed and youth are frustrated and youth are angry and that can be turned very quickly into something which is really untoward. And we saw that, I think, very, very clearly in this book. And this is a good moment uh, for you to read the second excerpt. Yeah, this is a part near the end of the book where he, you know, where, where Agu is now again thinking he's been in as a child soldier for some time. He's gone through the experience and all the horrors that have taken him there. He's lost his innocence and he's, he's forced with the you know, what he has ahead of him. And, and what he says is, and I'm just saying that I'm watching uh, how sometimes it is bright and other times it is just struggling too much to be shining. And I'm wanting to, to ask it, why is it even thinking to shine on this world? If I am sun, I will be finding another place to be shining where people are not using light to do terrible things. At night, I'm staring at the moon and I'm looking to see if a man is smiling. They are saying man is living there and smiling, but I'm never finding anything at all. Nobody is smiling in this place. If it is night, if it is day, nobody is smiling. And that's another powerful moment. And Agu, throughout this story, I think he met only one friend, Stryker, who's another child. Yes. Can you tell yeah, yeah. me about Stryker? Yeah, I mean, clearly Stryker had many, many issues. I mean, he, he was mute by what, from what you gather because he didn't speak throughout. Um, um, and you wonder, 
why why he was mute was it sort of a physical thing or was it because of trauma I mean you you never really understand what that is but there there is a bond that's created between both of them Striker's obviously older than Agu and has been in as a child soldier for more years and so I think Agu in a way gravitates towards him for be it for safety be it for you know for camaraderie or but whatever it might be in a very traumatic situation people always look for somebody to support them or something to give them a little bit of solace whatever it may be that they both shared the same experiences obviously so there was something they could um, think of together but obviously, with the communications issue with with uh, uh, Striker not being able to talk, a lot of it was done by even just drawing on the ground. Um, but you got a sense uh, with Striker there was a, a serious amount of anger there, or yeah, frustration or repression. I don't know what it was, but it, it came across that he was somebody who was bubbling, um, but not, not in a very aggressive sort of way. And whether it was because he was unable to communicate and that added to it, or whether it was just because he'd experienced much longer than Agu, the, the, sort of the, the horrors and devastations of being a child soldier. And of course, the other main characters we have then, of course, is the commandant himself and yeah. the lieutenant himself and Rambo. And again, you know, if you could just tell me about your thoughts on these three men. Clearly, the, the commandant um, was a very... Uh, driven, aggressive individual. Um, whether he had a, a longer-term plan is very difficult to understand. But for the moment he was in, he was very much in control and he wanted to be seen in control. And anybody who challenged his control, he uh, took care of it, as we saw with the lieutenant, who's, who was his number two, was actually, he had him assassinated as they visited a, a brothel in the village. And um, he then allowed Rambo to take over. And Rambo, because of the nature and the, the, the name, tells you what his credentials were. And, and I think uh, that kind of situation, and I remember seeing it in West Africa, you know, some of the, the people you came across, these rebel groups, they, they were um, like that. They had seen the TV and the, the videos of how people in other wars acted, how they dressed even, how they behaved. And uh, a lot of mimicking went on. And I, I think the case with, uh, with the commandant, he'd obviously had this idea that by being aggressive and by being in charge and having full control over everything, was which empowered him and gave him that. And there was always this continued threat and the way that he then abused um, Agu was part of that whole threat basis and uh, you know rewarding people for favours and uh, I, I think that it's quite characteristic of um, the whole nature of child war, child conflict, uh, conflict children in conflict and I, it's hard to say how old um, the commandant was or what he had done before but clearly he must have been a guy who had some sort of ambitions and now his ambitions were going to be realised by being the most aggressive, the most violent um, he could possibly be and at the same time in charge of a group of so it satisfies his need for control. What is your greatest hope for the people affected by humanitarian crisis? Well, I think what it would be is hopefully it would stop and stop soon and hopefully then people get out of the cycle of continued uh, fragility and uncertainty and then we can actually spend time supporting them and developing systems and giving people dignity back in their lives so that they have more chances and opportunities to, to lead and fulfill their, their, their dreams and their, 
ambitions and uh, and and you know to take away a, a lot of the the inequalities that I mean I'm sounding like some sort of romantic here but I'm also very always amazed by the the spirit the human spirit that people have and the resilience they can show and their ability to fight back and come back and my final question for you is that what one action can people out there who listen to this interview take to help address the causes and consequences of humanitarian crisis what is your call to action well my call to action would be that you know be aware of what's happening you know the crisis that's taking place in whatever country that you're focused on or whatever region find out what the dynamics are that's causing it what are the roles of that the major perpetrators be it governments or be it industry or be whomsoever and then find a way to raise the voice of your voice along with others to and in the right places uh, be it in parliaments or be it in the media and to find a way of joining a voice that's speaking out against this stuff because it shouldn't happen all the time the way it's happening when we can predict where and who and how this crisis will happen and if we can do all of that why can't we stop it and so and i think we have to find ways of coming together and you know bring it to the attention of our governments of our parliaments and our media to make sure that these crises are not accepted and certainly not forgotten yeah thank you jamie and uh, i've been touch thanks a lot we'll take care all the best thank you so much for listening you can get more information about me on twitter at Ruth underscore Mukwana, that is R-U-T-H underscore M-U-K-W-A-N-A, and my blog, ruthmukwana.com slash blog. Goodbye. Special thanks to my co-producer, Jamal Swift, music by the Nomadic Band. <laughs>